made it. Thank God you did. Let's see here. A highway patrolman waited more than an hour outside a locked car to issue a speeding ticket to Clemensis Galeonos of Santa Barbara, California. After being stopped, <laughs> after being stopped along US 101, Galenius locked his door and refused to come out. <laughs> uh, Officer Roy Hennis finally called a sergeant who broke the right front window. He was booked for speeding and interfering with an officer. I just love this. What, what great scenes. You know, can you imagine a scene like that in, in, uh, in uh, Adam 12? Uh, the, by speed, you, you ever watch Adam 12? So neat and clean. <laughs> <laughs> you know, police work. They never have seen that like like is really happening. Like there's a, this there's this police station right across from where I live. And the one day I walk along the street there, and, and there was a cop, and uh, and he he was just sort of standing, see, looking kind of bemused. The kind of stuff you never see in Adam Twelve. He's just looking kind of quizzical. See, he's just sort of standing there, and I and I look to see what he's looking at, and and. There was this old lady, I mean, a really old lady, and she must have been about 90, and she had a shopping bag, and old lady, she's walking around, and she was sort of bent over, and I don't know what was with her. She was, you know, kind of maybe lost a couple of the screws in her in her intricate mental system somewhere along the way, and uh, all the gears weren't meshing, and she had a bone, a large bone. You know, the kind you find in, like, a ham bone, something like that, a big bone. And, and she's, uh, she's hitting the hood of a car. <laughs> and, she, and this car was parked, and she's hitting this hood of the car with a bone. Well, the cop is looking at her, and this is in front of the police station. So he's looking, and she's really mad. She's hitting the hood. So he's watching her, and without any warning, suddenly, she, she spots him. I happened to be there, and she spotted me too. But she really was zeroing on on him, and she says, and she comes rushing at him, and she hits him with the bone. And she was about ninety, as I said, so she hits him with the bone, and he sort of backs away. He says, "Here, wait, wait a minute, what, what?" And she keeps hitting him with the bone. Well, with that, another cop he hears the the, the hoopla going on, and and he comes out. Of the of the station, he just sort of wanders out. He's got a cheese sandwich. She wanders out, and she sees him. She rushes over and hits him with the bone. Well, she hit him on the arm, and his cheese sandwich flew up in the air. So the cheese flies one way, and the bread flies the other. He's what's going on? It's like this great big cop. He turns around and he says to his friend, uh, the other cop, he says, "What's what's going on here, Roy?" And Roy's, I don't know. And she goes, go, 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 go. And she's hitting, now she's got two cops, and they don't know what to do. I mean, what does a cop do when, you know, you're being attacked by a 90-year-old lady with a, with a soup bone? It's very difficult to write that up, you know, attacked by a 90-year-old lady with soup bone. So they're, they're standing, they're just sort of backing away. They don't know quite what to do. And, and she's just running around making incoherent sounds. <laughs> and she starts beating on the hood of a car again. And this time it's a squad car. Well, sitting in the car, these two cops, and they're they're quiet. They don't even see what's been going on. See, it's all been happening outside of the window. They hadn't been noticing it. And they're in there writing up reports or something. And then all of a sudden, bang, 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 on the hood. Bang, bang, bang. Well, the cop looks out, see, and a very funny look on his face. 
And he sees the soup bone going up and down. He doesn't even see what's doing it. See, because he's down in the car. See, and with that, he looks out and he gets a soup bone right back at him. Hit him on the back of the neck. It crack and his head, his head jerked forward like that. And his hat falls off. And he looks up and he says, oh, ladies. Well, now you got about six cops. And, they, and it was a weird scene. <laughs> and here, here she is in the middle of it all. Absolutely no. She has not said one thing that makes sense, except <laughs> bang, bang, bang with a soup bone. Well, I, I figured, you know, I better, I better uh, before, it, it, it naturally, it, this is in the village, and naturally it starts to develop, see? So the next thing you know, about four guys come down the street wearing blue jeans, you know, with long hair and a bit, and they assume that the, that the cops are harassing the old lady, you know, with their way, hey, a pig, oh, a pink fuzz pig, you know, and the lady's going, oh, she's banging out a hood with the soup on. Well, I figured this was about time that I better take the subway, <laughs> at which point <laughs> I could hear the hoopla going out behind me. I went down the street, turned right, and five minutes later, I'm on my way uptown on the E-train. Just like, but now I don't know what happened, <laughs> how it worked out. And I thought, what a great sequence for Adam Twelve, you know, Marty Milner, you know, coming out and getting hit on the head with a soup bone as he's stepping out of his squad car, and that would be the beginning, you know. And then they do the commercial for deodorant or whatever it is, and they start the whole scene. Well, now I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not here to belabor the point here. I, I, I'm just saying that life is not necessarily the way it comes out on TV. I did not say it is not always not that way. I'm saying necessarily it is not that way. I mean, you know, not always. So, you know, the other day I get a call. So what are you going to do? You see, I get a call from this guy who's uh, who's uh, doing an anthology. I think I might mention it. I don't know whether I mentioned it to you. Anyway, this guy called me up and he's doing an anthology. So he's uh, some kind of an author type. He says, uh, says uh, Shepard, I know you're, you're a writer and you write and all. And they said, but I'm calling you... Now about the, you're in showbiz, right? And I said, <laughs> been earning my living at it for a long time. And he says, uh, well, uh, I'm compiling an anthology, and I'm talking to various types of people in showbiz, and uh, I would like to know, it's, it's an anthology based on favorite showbiz stories uh, that you've read as a performer that you like. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm starting an anthology of, of short stories about showbiz recommended by various people in showbiz. So I says, well, you don't see many short stories about showbiz. <laughs> I mean, not many. You know, showbiz is talked about a lot uh, in, in the columns and newspapers and TV guide, but very little is ever written about it other than uh, the Doris Day type thing where a younger, you know, the, uh, a star is born type thing. Those, You know, that's all fantasy. It really doesn't have much to do with the way it really is. And I thought, I says, well, I'll think about that. I'll give you a call later. And 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 it, it suddenly hit me this afternoon. I'm messing around, thinking, yeah, you know, you know, one of my favorite stories about showbiz is. You want to hear it? You want to hear it? Now, now, it was written in 1893, and it, it really <laughs> it has all kinds of archaic stuff involved in it. But it's uh, it's it's truly about showbiz, as opposed to the theater. You know, as opposed to uh, my reminiscences of an afternoon with Edward Albee, that kind of stuff. I'm talking about real showbiz. And this was written in 1893. 
And uh, in fact, I got a letter the other day from some guy. He said, uh, Shepard, he says, when are you going to read that story again? It's a great story. So would you please give me a little mood music here? Showbiz, please. This is the fable of Paducah's favorite comedians and the mildewed stunt. Once upon a time, there was a specialty team doing 17 minutes. The props used in the act included a hatchet, a brick, a seltzer bottle, two inflated bladders, and a slapstick. The name of the team was Zoroaster and Zendavesta. Well, these two troopers began their professional career with a road circus, working on canvas in the morning and then doing a refined knockabout in the grand concert or afterpiece taking place in the main arena immediately after the big show is over. Thank you, thank you, Ed. That's, that's, uh, that's enough mood music, but we will reset that. I will use that later. Well, when each of them would kick himself in the eye and Slattery had pickled his face so that Stebbins could walk on it, they decided that they were too good to show under a round top, so they became artists. They wanted a swell name for the team, so the sideshow announcer, who was something of a kidder and had attended a Unitarian college, gave them Zoroaster and Zendavesta. They were stuck on the name, and they had a job printer do some cards up for them. By utilizing two of Pat Rooney's songs and stealing a few gags, they put together 17 minutes and began to play dates and combinations. Zoroaster bought a cane with a silver dog's head on it. And Zendavesta had a watch charm that pulled the buttonholes out of his vest. After every show, as soon as they washed up, they went up and stood in front of the theater so as to give the hired girls a treat, or else they stood around in the sawdust and told their fellow workers in the realm of dramatic art how they killed them in Decatur and had them hollering in Lowell, Mass, and got every hand in the house at St. Paul. Now, occasionally, they would put a card in the clipper, saying that they were the best in the business. Now, if you don't know what the Clipper is, the Clipper's a showbiz magazine, or it was many years ago, very much like Variety. They put an ad in the Clipper saying that they were the best in the business, by none, and good dressers on and off the stage. Regards to the Leonzo brothers. Charlie Diamond, please write. Now, uh, <laughs> this, this, is, this, is, this is for people who know something about showbiz. Now, most of you are sitting out there confused. But in Variety... And in Billboard, there are continually ads that appear. The Klugman Brothers. And it says, specially act. Shows and fairs. Please write or wire. And then underneath it, they'll say, uh, ex-manager Charlie Fig Newton, please write. Contact us immediately. So this is, this is all very in showbiz, which reminds me, this is WOR in New York.
Now they didn't have to. They didn't have to study no new gags or work up no more business because they had the best act on earth to begin with. William Russell was jealous of them, and they used to know Francis Wilson when he'd done a song and dance. They had a scrapbook with a clipping from a Paducah paper which said that they were better than Nat Goodwin. When some critic who had been bought up on bought up by rival artists wrote that Zoroaster and Zendavesta ought to be on an ice wagon instead of on the stage, they would get out the scrapbook and read that Paducah notice and be thankful that all critics weren't cheap knockers and that there was one paper guy in the United States that recognized it a, a neat turn when he actually seen it. But Zoroaster and Zendavesta didn't know that the dramatic editor of the Paducah paper went to a Burgoo picnic the day that the actors came to town and didn't get back until midnight. So he wrote his notice of the Night Owl's performance from a program brought to him by the head usher at the Opera House, who was also a galley boy at the office. Zoroaster and Zendavesta played the same sketch for 17 years and made only two important changes in all that time. During the seventh season, Zoroaster changed his whiskers from green to blue. At the beginning of the 14th year of the act, they bought a new slapstick and then put an ad in the clipper warning the public to beware of imitators. All during the 17 years, Zoroaster and Zendavesta continued to walk chesty and tell people how good they were. They never could understand why the public stood for Mansfield when it could get Zoroaster and Zendavesta. The prop man gave it as his opinion that Mansfield conned the critics. Zendavesta said there was only one critic on the square in the whole country, and he was in Paducah. <laughs> when the vaudeville craze came along, Zoroaster and Zendavesta took their Paducah scrapbook over to a manager, and he booked them. Zoroaster assured the manager that him and his partner had done a refined act suitable for women and children with a strong finish, which had been the talk of all Galveston. The manager put them in between the trained ponies and a legit with a bad cold. When a legit loses his voice, he goes into vaudeville. Zoroaster and Zendavesta came on very cocky, and for the 7,800th time, Zoroaster asked Zendavesta, who was it I seen you coming up the street with? Then, for the 7,800th time, by way of mirth-provoking rejoinder, Zendavesta kicked Zoroaster in the stomach, after which the slapstick was introduced as a sub-motive. The manager gave a sign, and the stagehands closed in on the best team in the business, bar none. Of course, Zoroaster and Zendavesta were very sore at having their act killed. They said it was no way to treat artists. The manager told them that they were too smart for words to tell and to consider themselves set back into the supper show. Then they saw through the whole conspiracy. The manager was Mansfield's friend, and Mansfield was out to get him with his hammer again. Well, at present they are doing two supper turns to the piano player and a day watchman. That's all they play now. They were still the best in the business, and were still being used dead wrong. However, even to this day, they derive some comfort from reading the Paducah notice. And there is a moral, of course, to this, as there is to everything that happens to us in life. 
And the moral is, a dramatic editor should never go to a burgoo picnic, especially in Kentucky. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Now, now, hold it there. You just reset that. I'm going to use that. Now, you think, you think that that's... Uh, you think that that's kind of uh, kind of far-fetched. Well, let me tell you. I'm going to tell you how, how close to reality that is. One of the saddest things I've ever seen in my life. And you see some unbelievably sad things in showbiz. I'm telling you, uh, I mean, the real showbiz. Now, that's not the same as stars. That's not the same as, uh, as uh, what Steve McQueen said to Gene Fonda on the on the Johnny Carson show. That's that's something else. That's those are the people that have made it. But the real showbiz is filled with fantastic scenes. And I'm gonna I'm gonna I hope the guy isn't listening. But uh, we'll t we'll run that risk. But I, I'll I'll tell you a little incident that reminded me of Zoroaster and Zendavesta. Now of course the whole thing of Zoroaster and Zendavesta is they were totally without talent. I mean, and they had their slapsticks and bladders, and they did their thing. But they had gotten this one good notice. Now, if they hadn't gotten that, and, and they never knew that the notice, of course, uh, was a fake. But that notice kept them going for, and to the, to the obviously their dying day, they'd whip out that notice. So they really were good. Well, here a, a few months ago, a sad scene, a few months ago, I I... I was at a at a party, and uh, you know people I I, knew, I didn't know them too well. They were just sort of standing around. I had a drink, and and uh, one of the guys comes up and says, "Oh, yeah, of course, you know, show business. You're in show business, yes, indeed." He says, uh, "Gee, you want to meet Harold? He's in show business." I said, "Harold?" He says, "Yes, uh, Harold Kuberman. That's a fake name. I'm giving Harold Kuberman. Of course, you probably know Harold." Well, you, you learn to, to go along with this stuff. She said, oh, yes, uh, Goldman of Christ. Said, oh, yes, yes. Because I, you know, I didn't want to blast some guy out of the water. So says, yes, yes, oh, of course. And yes, and then, yes. Well, if I knew you'd know, hell, hey, there you see. So, hey, Harold, Harold, uh, hey, Harry, come on over. Well, here comes this little guy. And uh, he was, uh, he was uh, weighed about 120 pounds. And, and uh, you know. He had the little bags under his eyes and the little rimless glasses. And he had the hungry look of a guy who has never been called to the table. He had the look, <laughs> he had the look of a man who sees success always dangling two or three yards ahead of him. Like a carrot dangling in front of a, of a rabbit constantly. Have you ever gone to the dog races? You've heard of dog races? Well, you know how they run them. They have an electric rabbit that goes around the track, and the dogs never catch it. They're always behind it. Well, Harold Guberman had the look of the second dog from the end. Not the front dog, but the second dog from the end, trailing the field, but chasing that rabbit, which he will never catch. It's got a look, you know. It's, a, the, the, it's, it's the, the Willie Loman of showbiz. And I knew it. So he comes up to me and he says, Wow, he's always, they, they always can be noticed because they always carry very, very prominently on their person last week's copy of Variety to let people know they're in showbiz. So Guberman, <laughs> Guberman corners me immediately. He says, Say, listen, he said, uh, you know that crowd over at William Morris. Uh, you know, uh, why don't you give, um, why don't you give, uh, why don't you give, uh, 
Ackerman a call for me, you know. It's, you know I, I always wanted to meet him. This is the name of a fake agent I'm giving you, not a real one. He says, uh, you know that crowd with Ashley Famous. I understand you were handled by Ashley. I said, yes, I was. They have used all the words. He's listening. He said, oh, boy, uh, gee, I'm glad to see somebody here at this party that, uh, you know, a fellow professional in showbiz. I said, well, gee, it's kind of nice to meet you. Uh, Goberman, uh, uh, can I get you a drink or something, you know? Trying to be polite. He says, no, oh, no. I said, I, I never drink. You know, I may have a show coming up tomorrow. I got an audition tomorrow at 8, you know, and I, and I uh, just uh, lay off the sauce when I got an audition tomorrow morning. I said, gee, what are you auditioning for? Uh, I'm going in, you know, TV series, you know, I've got a series coming up. <laughs> I said, yes. Sounds good, Goldman. Glad to hear things are popping your way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. i got a series coming up. You know, it's coming up, uh, uh, yeah, i got a call from the coast, uh, and uh, they're going to shoot a pilot. Uh, I think they're going to shoot the pilot out in Nevada someplace. It's a Western series, you know. <laughs> and uh, i got to go in tomorrow. I'm going to read. Uh, you know, I'm going to read for... Uh, for uh, uh, I can see he couldn't remember the name of the director, you see. I said, oh, yeah. You, know, so you must get called in all these things all the time. You know, you, these names slip. There's so many guys, you know, working in and out of the coast. Yeah, yeah, that's the way it is. Uh, I can't have a drink. No, no. But I'll have some in the peanuts, though. So he grabs the penis and he starts putting them in his pocket. I could see right away this guy doesn't eat much. He doesn't eat often either, say so. <laughs> Not that he doesn't want to. It's just that the opportunity doesn't present itself that often. See, so he's loading up with the peanuts. So he says that, uh, uh, would you care to see a few of my, uh, few of my stills from some stuff I've done? Well, Zoroaster and Zenda Vesta floated in front of me. I could see them doing their act with the pig bladders. While he reaches down behind the sofa there, he has his stuff with him, and he takes out his, his, his briefcase, he's got the worn briefcase, and he opens it up, and it's one of these briefcases that has all kinds of dividers in it, you know, the kind with the envelopes, and it's got all kinds of files and stuff, and then he opens this thing up, and he takes this file out, and it's marked Stills, Network TV, well, he whips his his number one still of him in action. I couldn't believe what I'm seeing. He seriously showed this to me. You know what it was? It was a black and white still, a glossy, a big one, like a 12 by 14, all blown up, you know, big still. And it was a still of the Mr. Peeper show. Now... I don't know how long the Mr. Peeper show has been off television. <laughs> I'm telling you, well, when did it go off? I mean, the Mr. Peeper show is, is part of the antediluvian period of television. The Mr. Peeper show was a, was a, uh, was a, well, it was a, it was a peer and a, uh, and a contemporary of the Milton Burles show, wasn't it? So here's a picture of, of, of the, of the Mr. Peepers shows, and, and, I, I, and it's, it's Mr. Peepers, it's uh, Wally Cox standing at a blackboard, and it's obviously a prop, you can see he's got a pointer and he's pointing and there's a, uh, some kind of an equation or something on the board, and it was, you know, Mr. Peepers was a teacher, if you remember the show at all, Mr. Peepers taught school. Well, you could see behind Mr. Peepers. And he is talking to Tony Randall. You remember Tony Randall was in the Mr. Peepers show? And Mr. Peepers is talking to Tony Randall up at the blackboard. Tony Randall was another teacher in the show. And the two of them are talking about something, and he's got a pointer pointing at, a, at an equation. But you can see behind them a class. 
and it's filled with people. You know, it's a whole classroom. There's about 30 people in the class sitting there, and sure enough, with a ring around them, way in the back, is Harold Guberman. <laughs> and he's looking real, you know, he's looking real eager out there, because your eyeballs are bugging. And uh, there he was. He said, yeah, you know, that's why I did the series, you know, with uh, Wally Cox and uh, Tony Randall. Yeah, on that series, you might remember the series. Uh, it's um, uh, Mr. Peepers. Uh, and uh, here, I've got another one that you might be interested in. And he, he takes out another one. Well, this one was even more interesting. Uh, in its in its ramifications of uh, blasted dreams and hopes that never arrived and ships that sank on their way to port. <laughs> here was a, here was a picture. It was another still, and this was an outdoor still this time. It was a still at, that showed the side of what looked like a sand hill. There was a lot of holes in it and and, and uh, craters in it. It was a sand hill. And it was obviously a, some kind of a war show, some kind of a, an army battle scene. And there was about 35 guys laying flat on their stomach who were lying there, you see, with, with their with full pack and equipment, helmets down. And it was taken from behind. You didn't see any of them. You couldn't see their faces. And they were all laying there, see. And up at the top of the hill, way at the very top, is Richard Kiley. Well, now, Richard Kiley is dressed like a lieutenant in the infantry. And he's got a helmet, you know, you could see his bars and stuff, and, and he is he is looking over the hill with a pair of binoculars, away from the cameras. He's looking out like that. You can see it's Kylie, see. And there, circled, over next to one of the craters, in the lower left-hand corner of the picture, is a figure, hunched down, with a great big pack on his back, and there, circled, is Guberman. <laughs> he was one of the troops. He said, yeah, I was, uh, when I was uh, doing craft, I did, uh, I did a craft there, you know, that's uh, my Dick Kiley and me, you know, did this craft. And, uh, oh, I've got the, here, would you like to see some more? I said, well, wait, just, just a minute, uh, uh, Harry, I'd love to see some more of these. But uh, at that point, I was being to feel real sad. <laughs> I didn't want to, you know, I didn't know what to say. He says, oh, gee, gee, excuse me, there's somebody I know. Oh, hello, hi, Max, hey! And I, I ran over to this guy who I barely knew, and I started to have a, a very animated conversation. In the meantime, I can see back on the on the sofa now, uh, Guberman has been carried away. See, at the slightest opportunity, we'll whip out these pictures. Well, other people have seen him with the pictures, see? So now he's got two or three other people trapped, and he's passing around the, the Mr. Peeper's picture. And uh, I'm, I'm sort of drifting away towards the door. I don't want to get involved too deeply in this because it was, really, it was like it was like meeting Willie Loman, you know? You remember Willie Loman, The Death of a Salesman? It's like meeting Willie Loman at the National Shoe, Shoe Sailor is, uh, Retailers Convention. Ah, they love me in Boston, you know? You ought to see the, 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 the orders I get out of Boston. Well, I, I, I walked over to the, to the uh, bar there, and I'm... Uh, pretending like I'm getting another drink when up comes the host. He says, hey, he said, did you did you talk to Harry? I said, yes, I did. He says, I knew you guys would have a lot in common. I says, a lot in common? <laughs> ah, you know, showbiz, you know, Harry's in showbiz. I said, yes, he certainly is. And the, that night, you know, as, I, as I'm... As I'm walking out in, out in the cool, fresh airs, I'm drifting into the streetlights. I can, I can just see all around me. This is New York. All around me. These little pads, these little, these little hotels are filled with Harry Gubermans with their little pictures. 
They're little, you know, they're blow-ups and they're composites. And they're always, you can see them. You, you, would you like to see some of them sometime, actually? Anytime you come to New York, I'll give you some suggestions as a, as a, as a working showbiz type. You want to see some of them at work. You know the Cromwell Drugstore? It's down in the basement of Rockefeller Center. Go in there some afternoon. And that, that, that drugstore is always filled with thousands of them all sitting around at the counters. And you swear you're looking at real work and showbiz people. They've got Variety at Billboard. They've got showbiz magazines. And, and half of them are carrying copies of Strindberg. And you see worn, uh, worn copies of Albie's plays. And at the, they, they're darting back and forth to the telephone constantly. Those phones back there. Those phones are the Sargasso Sea of showbiz. Floating in that Sargasso Sea are the bits of wreckages of ancient ships that hit upon ancient shores and crashed into thousands of reefs. Zoroaster and Zendavesta are still with us. Hooray, hooray for Harry Cooper. Hooray for Mr. Peepers and Tony Rant and those composites of life and a great review the one time appeared in the Chelsea Shopping News. Yes. A big night on the stage. Now that's... Wasn't that a sad story? I mean, I'm not putting the guy down. Hey, John, how are you? <laughs> you know, John, John I, you're, you're one of the few guys who would understand this, what I've just told the story about here tonight on the air here. I'm talking to John Wingate here. I'm talking about the sad guys that you see in this town who pretend they're in showbiz and who once appeared in a scene with, with Wally Cox in a Mr. Peepers sequence and they keep a still of it with them all the time to show they're in showbiz. Oh, man, John knows a few of them. <laughs> but, uh, you know... Uh, that's the thing about aid. That uh, that story, by the way, was written by... Yeah, John. Last thing I ever do is to interrupt a guy and a friend's program. That's so I'll, I'll make it very brief. It's the same type of guy, and one feels sadly for him. You meet in the elevator, and he's got all the braggadocia and bravura in the world. Now, he knows Eugene Shepard are working. He knows that I, Wingate, are working. He knows gambling is working. Yeah. And what did you say in the elevator? Uh... You keeping busy? <laughs> Done any yeah. shows recently? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Oh, Back yeah. to you. You're right. That, that's exactly what he says. Uh, been busy lately? Yeah. In other words, he's trying to impute unemployment to you because of his own sad state. Yeah. Or the guy also says, uh, are you still on the air? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, John, you're right, man. <laughs> that's John Wingate, another observer of the human comedy. But... Uh, you know that's the that's the great thing about about George Aid. Now I, I I just read the story of George Aid. That was written by George Aid in 1893, and and uh, as as an old George Aid fan, I'll read you another story uh, that has here here on page 55 is um, you know when you when you talk about reality, I'm talking about the way life really is, as opposed to the fiction, you know, fictional version of life. 
you find that, that generally you wind up being a humorist or a comic. And people don't take your writing that seriously. They really don't. Because you're too close to, to what it's about. And you tend to laugh at it instead of weeping over it. Now, here's, here's a typical example of, of, uh, of George Aid. This time, <laughs> George Aid is dealing with, uh, in this case, uh, that they, the fact that, that well, I'll, I'll let you draw your own conclusions, because we're living in the middle of a showbiz age. Now, I say that people always lived in showbiz, uh, that, that at no point uh, did, do, are people willing to accept reality. I just, just this is just a belief that I have after a lot of time spent in, in the business and walking around and seeing that, uh, that most people tend to opt for fantasy. And they tend to also, at, at, at the same time, not only do they opt for fantasy, but they tend to opt for bombast. And the, the stronger you come on, uh, the more you'll be considered important. Now that's a, that's a, unfortunately a, a a truth that you see on you see it illustrated on the on the late night television talk shows constantly that the actor that comes on with the with the with the pomposity is always treated with great deference by Dick Cavett or he's treated by great deference by by Johnny Carson the great actor appears or the great writer appears and uh, the one thing you never do. Is, is, to, is to be realistic about what you've done. Because at that point, then, it throws the whole thing into a shambles. This is the, the fable. Again, this was written in 1896, so things haven't changed much. This is the fable of the preacher who flew his kite, but not because he wished to do so. A certain preacher became wise to the fact that he was not making a hit with his congregation. The parishioners did not seem inclined to seek him out after services, and tell him how great he was. He suspected that they were rapping him on the quiet. Now, the preacher knew that there must be something wrong with his talk. He'd been trying to expound in a clear and straightforward manner, omitting foreign quotations, setting up for illustration of his points such historical characters as were familiar to his hearers, putting the stubby old English words ahead of the Latin, and rather flying low along the intellectual plane of the aggregation that chipped in to pay his salary. But the pew holders were not tickled. They could understand everything he said, so they began to think he was common and was not saying anything important. So he studied the situation and decided that if he wanted to win them and make everybody believe he was a knobby and boss minister, <laughs> he would have to hand out a little guff. So he fixed it up good and plenty. On the following Sunday morning, he got up on the lookout and he read a text that didn't mean anything, read from either direction. Then he sized up his flock with a dreamy eye and said the following, We cannot more adequately voice the poetry and mysticism of our text than in the familiar lines of the great Icelandic poet Ikon Navaragic. And I quote, To hold is not to have under the seared firmament where chaos sweeps and vast futurity sneers at these puny aspirations. There is the full reprisal. Well, when the preacher concluded this extract from the well-known Icelandic poet. He paused and looked downward, breathing heavily through his nose like Camille in the third act. A stout woman in the front row put on her eyeglasses and leaned forward so as not to miss anything. A venerable highness dealer over at the right nodded his head solemnly. He seemed to recognize the quotation. 
members of the congregation glanced to one another as if to say, hey, this is certainly hot stuff. The preacher wiped his brow and said he had no doubt that everyone within the sound of his voice remembered what Quarolinius had said following the same line of thought. It was Quarolinius who disputed the contention of the great Persian theologian Rasmatuk that the soul, in its reaching out after the unknowable, was guided by the spiritual genesis of motive rather than by mere impulse of mentality. The preacher didn't know what all this meant, and he didn't care, but you can rest easy that the pew holders were on it in a minute. He talked it off just the way that Cyrano talks when he gets Roxanne so dizzy that she nearly falls off the piazza. The parishioners bit their lower lips and hungered for more first-class language. They had paid their money for tall talk, and they were prepared to solve any and all styles of delivery. They held onto the cushions and seemed to be having a great time. The preacher then quoted copiously from the great poet Amebius. He cited 18 lines of Greek and then said, How true it is. And not a parishioner batted an eye. It was Amebius whose immortal lines he recited in order to prove the extreme error of the position assumed on the controversy by the famous Italian Polenta. He had him going, and there wasn't a thing he could do from there on in. Just ride downhill. He sank his voice to the whisper. He talked about the birds and the beads. And then, although there was no cue from the weep, he shed a few tears up there on the platform. And there wasn't a dry glove in the church. After he sat down, he could tell by the scared look of the people in front that he had made a ten strike. Yes, from that moment on, his congregation grew and grew. The pew holders, of course, wouldn't admit to themselves that the preacher had rung in a lot of new ones that they never heard of. They stood pat. They said it was an elegant sermon. Perceiving that they would stand for anything, the preacher knew what to do after that. And he did it. And the moral of this, I think, is uh, something that showbiz has held due for many years. Ad agencies, automobile manufacturers, guys who make yo-yos. They've held to this moral. It hasn't changed since 1896 when George Ade wrote it in a Chicago newspaper. The moral is, give the people what they think they want. Now, the key word is think they want. Remember, it's not what they want. It's what they think they want. Hold it there now. <laughs> now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, that, that story, too, uh, may, maybe means more to me than it does to most people because a friend of mine, one time, was writing soap operas for years and getting nowhere. Nobody called him an intellectual. And then one time he took one of his soap opera, the actual soap opera script, a script which he had written for a soap, and he turned it into a play, a three-act play. But instead of using uh, the soap opera characters who had uh, never gotten him much in the way of critical applause, you know, the other woman, the wronged wife, the nervous husband, and the uh, dashing the, uh, the, the dashing lover, which is uh, found in all soap operas. He put them in 15th century Spain, and he invented 15th century characters. 
play ran for a year and a half on Broadway. He got a Hollywood contract. He won the Pulitzer Prize for that year and the Critics Circle Award. Give them what they think they want. And all we can say to that is, good night, Howard Cosell, wherever you are. for John Scott. He's got the news.